0: Cathodic protection of reinforced concrete in particular is something that only ever comes in these days when the damage is already initiated. The aim has been for a long time and we've succeeded in minor little wins but we still have not got the big general acceptance of it is to use cathodic protection from new on structures. The same as we do with ships and pipelines and oil rigs.
1: Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne.
2: And I'm Johnny Dowling. For this episode, we've partnered with consultant Mott MacDonald to explore the vital contribution that cathodic protection can make in preventing corrosion of metal in structures.
1: But in order to do that, we need to travel back in time to 1824.
2: Because it was 200 years ago when President of the Royal Society, Sir Humphrey Davy, presented a very important paper to the British Navy.
1: The subject was on the corrosion of copper sheeting by seawater and on methods of preventing this effect.
2: Placing copper plates on ships had become an effective strategy for preventing shipworm from burrowing into the wooden hull of naval vessels.
1: These Teredo worms were actually mollusks that thrived in higher salinity oceans and could grow up to a metre in length.
2: Attacking any wooden structure, their boring motion is said to have inspired Mark Brunel's tunnelling shield many decades later.
1: The problem for the Navy was that the copper that was protecting the ships was corroding fast and they didn't know why. And so it turned to the organisation that led on all scientific matters the Royal Society for answers. Davy, assisted by another famous scientist, Mr Michael Faraday, embraced the challenge.
2: Today, Humphrey Davy is perhaps more often remembered for discovering potassium or inventing the Davy lamp, with its enclosed flame to protect miners. But what he discovered at sea was just as important, although it wasn't recognised at the time.
1: Professor Paul Lambert from consultant Mott Macdonald is a world leading authority on materials and cathodic protection. He knows exactly what Davy discovered and why 200 years later it remains incredibly important.
0: I'm Paul Lambert, Head of Materials and Corrosion Technology and I look after all aspects of inspection remediation and development of technologies for achieving both of those, really.
1: He's also a professor at the Centre for Infrastructure Management at Sheffield Hallam University. Like Davey, his curiosity drives him to find new ways of solving problems and sharing these findings.
0: So I've published continuously since 1983. I think I'm probably addicted to it.
1: Not only does Paul appreciate Davey's work, he brought an artefact to the interview. What are we
0: looking at? Right, what we've got there, that is a piece of actual copper sheathing off the bottom of a a HMS Sirius, which was scuttled in 1810.
1: It's an incredible rectangular, rough-edged, slightly corroded piece of copper retrieved from the wreck of this great ship.
2: HMS Sirius was a 36-gun Royal Navy frigate engaged in the blockade of Napoleonic Europe. She was lost in 1810 when her crew scuttled her after she grounded during the Battle of Grand Port against the French Navy off what is now Mauritius.
1: Paul's piece of history still has the copper nails that held it in place.
2: So what did studying these copper plates teach Humphrey Davy?
1: By conducting experiments with copper in seawater, he understood the chemical reactions occurring between the copper and the sea that led to corrosion.
2: In his paper, he stated copper is a metal only weakly positive in the electrochemical scale, and according to my ideas, it could only act upon seawater when in a positive state. Consequently, if it could be rendered slightly negative, the corroding action of the seawater upon it would be null.
1: He added that these chemical reactions could not happen if the whole surface was rendered negative.
0: Basically, corrosion is a battery.
1: In a battery, there must be an anode, which loses metal atoms and releasing electrons, making it more positive. And this is what was happening to the copper plates.
2: And a cathode, which receives electrons, rendering it more negative.
1: And an electrolyte solution, which provides the medium for the chemical reaction.
2: So.
0: If you look at a piece of metal and you see there's a, like a pit in the middle, that pits the anode. The area around it that isn't corroded is a cathode. So, anode, bad?
1: Because it's these lost electrons, resulting from the release of metal atoms, that leads to corrosion.
0: Cathode, good. And we've got both of them on our piece of metal that's corroding away merrily. And uh, not only are we losing material, But that's recombining with oxygen and water to make what we think of as rust. And rust, by definition, must have a higher volume than the metal it came from because it's added water and oxygen in there.
1: This increase in volume becomes a much bigger problem for reinforced concrete. But we'll get to that later.
0: OK, so if we can make everything in the piece of metal we care about be cathodic, then nothing's going to be lost. There's going to be no rust, there's going to be no expansive products from it. It's not going to cause cracking, it's just going to sit there happily being itself forever.
2: And this is what Humphrey Davy told the Navy, and they set about installing anode protectors on their ships. These anodes were more strongly positive than the copper and gave up their electrons more readily.
1: For this, Davy found a crude form of iron, called pig iron, was the most effective metal. This would corrode, but the copper remained in perfect condition. Galvanic protection was born.
0: And they put these, what they call protectors, what we call anodes now, they put protectors on. And it worked. And it worked so well that the Navy fell out with him and called him an idiot and got the press
2: to put cartoons in the newspapers. Davy was ahead of his time because the solution he came up with worked spectacularly and stopped corrosion. But there was another side effect that the Navy was not happy about.
0: Well, the problem was that it stopped the copper corroding. What they hadn't appreciated was that if you wanted to anti-foul, it was the copper in solution that killed the barnacles and the clinging marine species that were slowing your ship down. So um, it was an inevitable consequence of using copper uh, to the bottom of the ships. It, It made them faster. It stopped the boring animals... that that were going to punch holes through the wood. But it also, uh, uh, in order to be effective as an anti-fouling, it needed to corrode.
1: And so Davy's early discoveries became a bit of a false start for cathodic protection. But his contribution remained critically important, because a century later, the world was ready to practically apply his research.
0: What really triggered the use of it as a useful technology was the oil and gas, mainly in North America, because there it was seen as a a way of, let's be honest, stopping leakage.
1: By preventing corrosion in buried steel pipes.
0: So it's, it's 1930s, 1940s, you start to see it getting used. Now, once we get to the 40s and 50s, we're getting it being used in Europe as well. There was a lot of work done in Russia on the theory, it was being used over here, and it was being used mainly for buried and submerged pipelines and then starting to be used on ships. We're talking about both galvanic and the, the arrival in any significant uh, levels of impressed systems.
1: Galvanic systems are those where the more reactive anodes or protectors are applied and allowed to disintegrate, but these only last as long as the anode itself scientists came up with another solution that would last even longer. Application of impressed current cathodic protection, which provides a direct supply of electrons through a small electrical current. In theory, these can last for as long as the current is applied. And these are the systems that Paul and his team have been innovating with to save structures. His work on this began in the 1980s.
0: I mean, I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time in the sense that I was working at a laboratory that was looking at corrosion of steel and concrete. We're looking at some of the ways of controlling it. We're near to the Midland Links. There was a trial there in the late 70s, early
2: 80s at Gravelly Hill. Which was a series of reinforced concrete motorway bridges, deteriorating due to chloride-induced corrosion of the steel
1: reinforcement. This was a recently recognised failure mechanism in reinforced concrete. It began in response to a trend from the 1960s, the use of de-icing salts.
3: So the use of de-icing salts on UK roads has a major detrimental effect on reinforced concrete.
2: This is Ray Langley, divisional director at Mott Macdonald and a fellow of the Institution of Civil Engineers specialising in bridges. The
3: ensuing chloride attack causes spalling of the concrete and corrosion of the exposed reinforcement, all leading to a loss of strength. It's a major problem on UK roads and uh, UK infrastructure currently.
1: In fact, it's an issue worldwide. The US Federal Highways Administration predicts that repairing corrosion damage costs around $13.6 billion a year.
2: The issue is that when de-icing salts combine with water, they dissociate and separate into individual components, including chloride ions.
1: These are then free to attack the concrete and penetrate through to the steel beneath.
2: Steel encased in concrete naturally forms a protective coating, but chloride ions attack this, exposing the steel to the air and water, allowing corrosion to begin.
1: And this is where the expansive effect of this increase in volume becomes particularly problematic because as Ray explained, it then causes the concrete to crack and spall.
2: Left untreated, this can ultimately lead to structural failure.
1: Back in the 1990s, chloride attack and corrosion was a serious problem facing the Silver Jubilee Bridge in Northern England.
3: I've been involved in the maintenance of the Silver Jubilee Bridge for over 25 years now.
1: This bridge is very special. It carries the A557 over the River Mersey and has been a vital connection between Runcorn and Widnes since it opened in 1961. In fact, it's credited with transforming the town of Runcorn. In the decade after the bridge was built, trade at the port of Runcorn increased sixfold and the traffic on the bridge tripled in its first decade, leading to a widening programme to keep up with demand in 1975. The original design and the widening programme were carried out by Mott MacDonald predecessor company Mott, Hay and Anderson.
3: It's an iconic structure. It's Grade two listed and it's similar in form to the Tyne Bridge, which was also designed by Mott MacDonald, and the Sydney Harbour Bridge.
1: The main bridge span consists of a sweeping steel arch taking the road over both the River Mersey and the Manchester Ship Canal. It's part of a wider complex of structures owned by Halton Borough Council, including 35 smaller bridges, elevated roadways and retaining walls.
3: The main Silver Jubilee Bridge is uh, 496 metres long and it's a two-pin steel arch truss with continuous side spans.
1: At the time of construction, in the late 1950s, its steel arch was the longest in Europe and it's one of the reasons for its heritage status.
3: So, Mott Macdonald, as Mohe Anderson, uh, originally got involved uh, with the Silver Jubilee Bridge uh, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, when it became apparent uh, that the existing transporter bridge, uh, which spans the Mersey and Ship Canal, uh, was no longer serviceable it had uh, it had life expired, and so Mott and Hey Anderson were employed to investigate uh, alternative uh, options for the bridge.
1: And this is where the story gets even more interesting because this iconic structure was almost a different kind of bridge entirely.
3: It was uh, originally intended to be a suspension bridge, and the design was being uh, developed by. Mohay-Anderson in conjunction with the First Severn Bridge.
1: For both of these crossings, extensive wind tunnel testing was carried out, as engineers were all too aware of the dangers that wind loading could present.
3: So it's vitally important um, with long-span structures to have uh, laboratory wind tunnel tests undertaken. and you have to remember that at the time of the development of the design of the First Seven and uh, the new Runcourt Windless bridge, the Tacoma narrow suspension bridge collapse had only taken place no more than 15 years earlier.
1: This spectacular bridge failure was captured on film and it's essential viewing for bridge enthusiasts who can easily find it on YouTube.
3: And I think we've all seen the uh, black and white videos of how the bridge has uh, gradually oscillated, leading to its ultimate collapse. Well, when the uh, tests were done at the National Physical Laboratory in Teddington, whilst the first seven bridge uh, successfully passed its wind tunnel tests, uh, the engineers got some very disturbing results due to the presence of the Victorian Truss Bridge, just to the west of the bridge.
1: This is an existing railway bridge built in 1868.
3: And it's the effect of the buffeting and the uh, wind vortex that was produced by uh, the presence of the Victorian Rail Bridge uh, that uh, it led to concerning results. And as a consequence, it was decided to not proceeds with the suspension bridge and instead to produce a two-pin steel arch as has been constructed which is a lot more torsionally stiff to lateral wind loading
2: and so in 1961 the Runcorn Witness Bridge opened to traffic and demand soared in 1977 it was renamed the Silver Jubilee Bridge in honor of the 25th anniversary of Queen Elizabeth II in 1988, it was listed as a national heritage structure. But huge demand and the use of de-icing salts to keep the lane safely operational in winter had unexpected consequences.
3: The effect of de-icing salts uh, from the 90,000 vehicles using the complex was, have a, was having a major damaging impact on the complex's RC Dex Lab and supporting piers. Lane closures or weight restrictions, uh, with the ensuing gridlock that this would create uh, from traffic delays, it was becoming more and more likely.
1: Until this point, the only way to repair this kind of corrosion had been to drill out the damaged concrete, cut out the damaged steel, and replace whatever was required.
2: This was costly and time-consuming. What they had
0: been doing, and this was quite really, quite normal in the um up to the well into the should we say late 70s early 80s uh, at least and many beyond that was to go in cut out remove the loose material cut back a little bit put a patch in of pretty well ordinary concrete and then go away again.
1: And this was how most if not all acetoners were approaching the issue of corrosion in reinforced concrete.
0: but you're not you're actually making it worse without realising it because um, you're establishing the requirements for what's uh, what what was referred to as incipient anode behaviour anode being the bits, the the part of the battery that loses material if you like and uh, what we're actually doing is by cutting out an area and putting a nice clean patch in we're making a really good cathode that's the driver for what's going on. Adjacent to that previously had been protected it had been it had been cathodically protected inadvertently by the rusting steel as soon as you clean one patch but don't deal with what's happening adjacent to it the area adjacent to it starts to corrode and so you come back and you get a bigger repair than last time. So you repair that you come back and get an even bigger repair you know and that's that's that there was that cycle that, that needed to be broken
2: breaking the cycle meant finding a better way and Paul Lambert knew that cathodic protection had huge potential.
0: And the first thing we did was we went along and identified the areas that need repair.
1: Initially, this was in the piers where extensive spalling had exposed the rebar, which was visibly corroding.
0: We went a um, mixed metal oxide titanium mesh as a source of the electrons that protects the steel. In a sprayed concrete
1: overlay. The titanium mesh becomes the anode, forcing the existing steel to behave as a cathode. And as Paul's already explained, cathodes don't corrode. This is overlaid by sprayed concrete because there has to be an electrolyte to allow the ionic movement to occur. And applying a small direct current to the mesh provides electrons, meaning the titanium works as the anode.
0: So we blanket it with this repair. And, that, and we were able to do it with the sprayed concrete or the contractor we worked various contractors we worked with, we were able to do it so that it, at the end it looked as it had before when it was new.
1: But just because it looks brand new doesn't mean it's worked.
0: The proof that it's working, the proof in that it's working is 10 years, 20 years, 30 years hence when it's still okay.
1: Which? Which it are. has, which we are. <laughs> which we <laughs> are. It and it's still working. This was the first time that Cathodic Protection, or CP, had been used to such an extent on a bridge in the UK. Paul and Ray commend Halton Borough Council for being willing to pioneer the method and explained that one of its biggest advantages for the council was that it was much less disruptive than repairs and reconstruction.
3: CP has avoided the alternative of breaking out and replacing the reinforced concrete and the consequential cost and environmental impact this will bring. So the Silver Jubilee Bridge complex and the main bridge is an excellent example of the benefits of CP for the maintenance of UK infrastructure.
2: It worked so well that when it became time to repair the reinforced concrete bridge deck, the team once again turned to the cathodic protection. This was a few years later, and there had been some major developments in cathodic protection systems and technology, and the team came up with something ingenious.
0: The deck had other considerations, and in fact, from very early on, We felt we'd have to do something with the main suspended deck. It was always very lightweight, relatively thin, hung on cables. We didn't want to put mesh and overlay on it because that would have been very hard to apply when it was open and working because of the vibrations. And we didn't want to have to close the bridge to do it. Uh, Plus, you know, mesh and overlay, wonderful, but it weighs a lot.
1: If the deck had been deep enough, Paul says the team could have drilled in an array of anodes, but the deck was too thin, and this work would have been too disruptive. The team had to come up with another way of forcing the reinforcement to become more cathodic.
0: What we needed to do there was have something that could be surface-mounted but lightweight. A little later on, we we became aware there was a company we had been working with in Norway who made anode systems, and we were aware they had a system that they that they'd generally produced for harbours. And it was basically a, 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 a FRP.
2: Fibre-reinforced polymer.
0: Pultruded FRP, that's where they pull the fibres and dimensions so you get very really good properties. Looks like you know, glass fibre basically, but it, and it was, I think, a glass. A glass was the, was the fibre in that, with a um, a resin uh, to produce these like eye sections that were then bolted against the Uh, the harbour wall with a ribbon in.
1: A ribbon of reactive metal, which is the new anode.
0: Uh, On a piece of glass foam. And then the seawater would seep in and would uh, saturate
2: it and it would let it work. Of course, soaking the Silver Jubilee bridge deck in seawater was not an option.
0: So we worked with them and came up with an alternative system that used a a deliquescent uh, salt Uh, something that would absorb, would not be harmful in itself, but would absorb moisture from the air and then use that to keep it moist and keep it in contact. And that's what it was.
1: These foam-filled, glass-reinforced polymer anode trays looked like cassettes that were bolted to the underside of the deck. Paul's deliquescent salt was essentially a gel that acted as the electrolyte solution and enabled the current to flow.
0: And it was easy to go up. It was bolted in place, the contractor loved it, they could carry it easily, they could locate it, they could fix it, there was no curing involved, there was no lead time other than, you know, sort of, the access, and they were able to put that on.
1: Paul describes the solution as simple, but it was so innovative, it was actually a world first winning awards from leading international technical bodies from the Institution of Civil Engineers to the International Concrete Repair Institute.
2: The Silver Jubilee Bridge was not the only structure that Paul and his team were working on. In 2003, the same Royal Society that Humphrey Davy presided over, awarded Paul a fellowship for his work on the preservation of steel heritage structures.
1: Paul and his team at Mott MacDonald had used cathodic protection to save an entire building. This was a steel-framed, terracotta-clad London Underground station called Gloucester Road. In the late 1990s, London Underground were faced with the terrible realisation that the steel was corroding. Up to three millimetres of rust was pushing out the mortar, cracking the unique terracotta tiles.
0: What we didn't want to do is dismantle it and rebuild it, which is what the original proposal was.
1: Paul had a better plan. Cathodic protection.
2: Rows of platinized titanium anodes were installed in the steel frame from inside the building, stopping the corrosion. But we're able to
0: do it for a fraction, a fraction of the cost by, by leaving most of it in place. And as you say, that's got more than just the cost saving and, and, and the sustainability and all those sorts of things. With a, a heritage, what you might call a heritage structure, it... it, it it maintains the original material in the original original place. it's never it's not that we put the same stuff back again, it's that we never removed it in the first place.
1: This and other pioneering work over the past three decades means that today the team is called upon to examine and protect structures all over the world.
4: Recently, I'm, I'm working on a um, car park in uh, uh, in New York.
1: Rudy Marola is a structural engineer who's also a materials and corrosion specialist. He enjoys investigating the causes of corrosion before designing and monitoring cathodic protection systems.
4: I think we are a a little bit like doctors, really, you know, and uh, that we we assess the structure, see, you know, the conditions, uh, and uh, and we try to to, to offer the best uh, possible um, option in order to to save it. So yeah, it's um, it's very interesting.
2: In New York, for example, the project involves designing an impressed current cathodic protection system for the columns, beams and floor slabs of the car park.
4: It's a really huge uh, structure. Uh, It's on one level, um, but um, the surface area covers basically four football pitches.
1: Rudy has also worked on jetties and metro stations, but by far the most common application for CP is bridges. For reinforced concrete structures, these account for around 80% of all projects. And the systems have evolved over time, becoming easier for owners to apply and monitor.
2: Originally, CP monitoring data, such as operating current and voltage, and potentials of the monitoring probes, was obtained and reviewed on site. But now Rudy or his client can perform this from any location.
4: So using a, a, a laptop or actually I can I can do it using my mobile phone. I could actually uh, now log in a remote rateway system and check if it's on. Even uh, run a performance assessment uh, and uh, analyze the data and uh, if it's not performing as required uh, I could uh, adjust the uh, the output of the the system so
2: everything now
4: can be done remotely
2: This is making the technology more user friendly and just as importantly more sustainable This is something that the team is very proud of knowing that their work is preserving the life of infrastructure lowering carbon and saving money
4: There is some pride in it as well, because actually you are saving a, a structure, you know, as I said, in some cases, if we didn't apply CP, the only alternative would be to demolish the structure to, to replace it.
5: I'm really passionate about sustainability. I think it's really important to preserve the structures that we use today. Cathodic protection is a really, really good way of doing that.
1: Saira Kureshi is a graduate materials engineer working in the bridges and civil structures team.
5: I took an interest in material science, which is what I did in my postgraduate master's degree. And then whilst doing my studies, I saw that a lot of the applications of materials related to the civil industry. And then I came across Mark McDonald and I saw that they have a big focus on bridges, civil structures, and a lot of the things that I did in my master's degree.
2: Her work involves undertaking site inspections, checking for corrosion and other damage to big civil structures. And she's excited about the potential for applying cathodic protection in the future.
5: It's already used on big structures like bridges and car parks, so I can only see it being used like for even bigger applications.
1: It can even be used before corrosion begins to prevent it from happening in the first place.
0: There is no reason on earth why reinforced concrete could not have cathodic protection on it from new. It tends to be put aside because it's perceived to be it's an added complication, it's an extra expense, but it's a very, very small expense up front to prevent a very much greater expense later on.
2: This would mean installing a system on the most vulnerable areas of a structure from the very beginning, preventing any future corrosion.
0: If you're doing it from new with reinforced concrete it requires a much lower current. It only needs about a tenth of the current. So you can use smaller anodes, you can use smaller ribbons, you can use less power. It it also is much more easily controlled. So it's a very simple system to install, to operate.
1: Making it much cheaper than retrofitting a system once steel corrosion has already begun.
0: The advantage there is, because it's operating from, from the start, it's maintaining the steel in a passive condition, it's generating alkalinity, so if there's any carbonation, it's being countered. It's repelling chloride ions, so they never even get to the steel in the first place if they are present. It just makes so much sense.
2: From a sustainability perspective, it also makes sense to use CP as a way to mitigate issues with locally available materials, for example, sand that naturally contains chlorides.
0: For example, sand. Dune sand is the obvious stuff to use, but it has a lot of chloride in it. To wash dune sand to make it suitable for concrete, to international standards, uses far more water than you would wish to use, given how difficult, how expensive it is to get that water. We have, in at least one application, used and been able to use cathodic protection to allow them to use dune sand in their construction and make good the shortfall, if you like, between the quality of the sand and the durability of the structure with cathodic protection.
1: Which means that local sand can be used instead of importing sand from overseas and without wasting huge volumes of water washing out the chlorides.
2: Another option is something that Paul and his team call CP Ready, and it's already being used by some forward-thinking organisations.
0: The idea there is that we don't, actually install the anodes we don't uh, install anything but what we do have is we have the system Uh, we have all the information we need and we have the connections and the uh, general geometries right for putting the CP on later. So we've got some metros overseas we've got some bridge structures UK and overseas and and a tunnel in the UK that are all CP ready and it just makes the eventual installation easier.
2: It's been 200 years since Sir Humphrey Davies' electrochemical experiments revealed the value of cathodic protection.
1: In his paper to the Royal Society, he wrote of his hope that illustrating some obscure parts of electrochemical science could offer important practical applications.
2: Like many leading thinkers, some of his ideas were ahead of their time. Fortunately, his research was preserved and his ideas expanded by other scientific pioneers, meaning that ships, pipelines and now structures have benefited from his scientific endeavours.
1: In a world of limited resources, protecting what we have is more important than ever before and cathodic protection is one way of preserving and extending the life of assets. Paul Lambert has his own hopes for the future.
0: So, ultimately, the technical solution, the sustainable solution, the the intellectually enjoyable solution is to put it in from day one, keep it simple, keep everything as it should be for, if not ever, as long as anybody can imagine. And um, with minimal you know, sort of maintenance and operational requirements, that's the ultimate.
2: Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. This episode was written and produced by Bernadette Ballantyne and hosted by Bernadette and me, Johnny Dowling. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the man who protects us from getting rusty is Rory Harris. Thank you to our partner for this episode, Mott McDonald, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, and on LinkedIn.